questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight on Veritas, we'll discuss the Bavarian Illuminati and the rise and fall of the famous and infamous order, including its penetration of Bavarian society and its destruction by the Bavarian government. Our guest will explain the Bavarian Illuminati's grades, rituals, ceremonies, and fundamental philosophies. We'll examine the leaders of the order, and we'll discuss the only surviving record of documents that were destroyed during the two world wars. The Bavarian Order of the Illuminati is the most celebrated secret society in the world. Though officially lasting only 11 years, the powerful spell and shadow cast by the Illuminati still looms in the present day, where its influence can be seen in current conspiracy beliefs and actions by powerful individuals working in the shadows. The original Order of the Illuminati was founded by Bavarian professor Adam Weishaupt in 1776. Although the order was banned and brought down by the Bavarian elector in 1787, when he became aware of the extent to which it had infiltrated the courts, schools, and his own administration, its legend and deep influence lives on to this day. The book we'll be discussing tonight is titled The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society. This book was originally published in French in 1915, and never before available in English, until now. Many of the documents the author consulted for the writing of this book were destroyed during the two world wars, making this book the only surviving record of many of the Order's secrets. If you want to know, stay with us. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Obviously, we have to give credit to the author of this book, René Leforestier. He was born in 1868, died in 1951. He was one of the preeminent historians of the occult worlds of the 17th and 18th centuries. His work explored the relations between the many secret societies that existed during this time, with a special emphasis on Freemasonry and Martinism. And the person responsible for bringing this information out to us now, after so many years, is John E. Graham, an award-winning translator, artist, and writer specializing in esoteric topics and surrealism. And directly from Vermont, I'd like to welcome John E. Graham. Hello, John, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Well, John, the title of the book is The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society. It was originally written in 1915. 
When did you decide to translate it to make it available to the English-speaking community? Well, I uh, was asked by a friend who had some ideas of using it uh, in some, a book he was writing. Uh, his plans never materialized, and I had the rough translation for about 10, 12 years, and then I decided it would be worth uh, finishing it up right and uh, trying to get it published. I actually work for Inner Tradition, so I approached them. I had no luck finding his estate or very much about him whatsoever, but uh, one of the people I was dealing with, a publisher of a cult press in Paris, mentioned that the book was due to go in the uh, public domain last year. So uh, I got busy and finished it up, and now we have it. So for public domain, for those who don't understand, there's a copyright time, and after so many years, just like drugs, it becomes public domain or it could be generic. How many years did it take before it became public domain? Uh, In France, it's 70 years after the death of the author. And this book was always kind of questionable anyway because it was so old and it might not have been, the copyright may not have been renewed or not. I was never able to get a very clear picture of just what the arrangements were. Sure. Now, the word, the, the word, the word fall in the title, did the order really fall? And this is before, I want to discuss the, the origins and, and dissect it all, but whenever I hear the word fall in the title, did the order really fall or did, did it metamorphized into something else? Because it's 2022, and we're still discussing it. Yeah, I well, it's not in the book, but my personal theory is that this is an excellent example of an egregore which is kind of an occult concept of a thought form that's created by a collective activity that survives the collective activity or expands beyond it, but in any case becomes more than the sum of its parts. And uh, it's fairly clear from this book, the evidence is overwhelming, that the Bavarian Illuminati, who at their height had members throughout what's now Germany, it was still the Holy Roman Empire then, and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Uh, They had members throughout these regions, uh, numbering in several thousand, maybe 3,000 all told. And they had successfully uh, infiltrated many key positions in Bavaria. Uh, Their success uh, politically elsewhere in uh, Germany wasn't as pronounced, but they did have Several uh, famous members, such as Goethe, uh, the philosopher Herder, uh, the religious writer Nikolai, and other individuals, some of whom are better remembered than others. But uh, you know, they there was a brief moment where they where their fortune seemed to be uh, rising beyond any uh, hopes of being being stopped. But uh, events and what I believe was. Weishaupt's and stubbornness and authoritarian tendencies uh, acted as a kind of Achilles heel for the order. Let's talk about the founding of the order. And obviously you mentioned the name of the man who founded. I'd like to know more about the origins of this man, his lineage and so on. Well, Adam Weishaupt was uh, 
he was Bavarian, and the thing about Bavaria at this time is that it was the most backwards part of what's now Germany. And in fact, in the uh, uh, 16th century, when the Reformation was in full swing, uh, it was practically uh, turned into the uh, medieval version of North Korea by its elector count who just shut down the borders to keep Protestant ideas out. So the rest of Germany was much more evolved intellectually and uh, they were much more conversant with liberal ideas that we're familiar with that are you know, in, foundational to our own culture and political system. And Adam Weishaupt uh, was a free thinker. He'd gone through the Jesuit system and he, that had created a lifelong hatred for the Jesuits. And even though the Jesuits were at this at the time of the order disbanded by the Pope uh, for uh, political manipulations and things that he didn't believe he could control, uh, they were still they were still going strong, even though they were no longer uh, called Jesuits. And Weishaupt was a professor of law, became a professor of law at the University of Ingolstadt which had been one of the Jesuit colleges. And he was constantly warring with other members of the faculty and some members of the administration because he was introducing books that were not considered appropriate. These books were freely available throughout the rest of Germany, but they were still banned or frowned upon in Bavaria. And his struggles with the Jesuits there, he looked on as a example of their the oppressive the their oppressive presence in the rest of uh, Bavaria, and along with a few like-minded students and uh, friends, he decided he needed to create a secret society that would be able to to. Uh, champion the ideas uh, that didn't require such a clandestine activity in the rest of Germany, but would would not be able to flourish in Bavaria. So on April first, uh, seventeen or May first, seventeen seventy six, uh, the first meeting of the Illuminati occurred. I think there were five of them. And isn't it an interesting, Ignatius of Loyola, he was the first, you mentioned the Jesuits, he was the first yeah. Jesuit, and the a Pope banned the Jesuits, but isn't it interesting that a Pope now is the first in place as the first Jesuit Pope? What's your take on this? No, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of it before. Uh, the Jesuits had a very strong uh, presence in South America much longer um, it, it lasted far longer after their influence had been reduced considerably in uh, Europe. So it's not surprising that uh, he, a Jesuit would come out of the uh, Latin American Catholic institution. And the Jesuits were also more sympathetic to uh, indigenous societies than, say, the Dominicans or some of the other orders that were more dogmatic. But then, uh, in fact, you know, the uh, Illuminati incorporated many uh, Jesuit 
ideas and systems into their own society. Let's talk about the founding again. Uh, this man, uh, Weishaupt, after him, the recruits, how did he, was he able to recruit for the order? Well, it was basically a, uh, uh, each, each member was then told to go out and recruit more members. The first uh, Illuminati center outside of Ingolstadt was in Munich, and which they called Athens. There was a very uh, pronounced uh, bias for classical Roman and Greek philosophy and traditions among the Illuminati. And one of their main missions they uh, felt was education of the members they brought in and their own continuing education. It was very much a pedagogical type of organization. And the people that he sent to Munich, uh, he was disappointed with, I think it was Massenhausen, who was the first, one of the first members, but he was really not very effective. And this, uh, he was replaced by uh, Xavier von Zwack, who was an aristocrat, and he was actually a member of the Illuminati throughout the entire course of its history. In fact, it was the raid on his house that netted the uh, Bavarian police all the documents that they wanted and needed to uh, effect their prosecution of the Illuminati and their suppression of the group. And he was... I mean, it was always a point of contention with Weishaupt. He felt that the people that he was working with weren't striving as hard as he was to implement the order and, and propagate it throughout. And it wasn't for some years, another four years, that the order finally was able to find somebody that broke through that uh, provincial barrier and made it possible for the order to spread throughout uh the different German principalities and electorates, as well as into the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. In order for an organization, secret or not, to thrive, there should be a recruitment process, as we're saying. Did Weishaupt summon his recruits, and who were they? Well, he basically got his recruits out of the uh, uh, students and sympathetic uh, professors or uh, colleagues that he had at the university. But once uh, they were working in other cities, uh, they were finding many members, mainly through the, you know, the upper, uh, through the uh, uh, merchants and uh, minor aristocracy. And they were looking for people who would have influence whose presence in the order would enable them to attract a larger number of members. So there's a part of the part of the initiation process was to train the the novice members into how to observe human behavior so that the people they chose to initiate into the order would be of the highest quality. Is there a difference between this I don't want to call it a dogma but they even use the term catechism when teaching, you know, when the teachings and they have to learn, take notes, and then hand in the papers, dissertation, almost like if it's a university. 
Oh yeah, it was very close. I mean, that's what I what I said. It was very ped- pedagogical. The the novice members were given enormous reading lists. Uh, plus, they would have to write a self evaluation, uh, complete with all their flaws, and then to observe their fellow novice members and write their impressions of them, which would then be handed up to the uh, their immediate superiors, who would then study these and make their decisions accordingly as to who would move on and who would probably not amount to much. But it was also, you know, while on the one hand, this talent for self-observation is very helpful for self-growth, uh, it also has a kind of uh, police-like surveillance aspect within the confines of the secret society where you could where you knew that your fellow members were uh, keeping tabs on everything you did and reporting it. Let's talk about the organization and the grades. Are grades the same as levels for say Freemasonry? Yeah, yeah. It's it's very it's very similar to uh, Freemasonry. Uh, in fact Later, once uh, the Illuminati made the decision to start uh, joining Freemason lodges in order to broaden their membership uh, selection and to, uh, you know, widen their influence, uh, there was a lot more work done on the grades that was, in fact, the second, the entire second level of the Illuminati grade system were basically the Freemason grades. And uh, when Lafore SDA was uh, going through the archives, getting access to all these different archives for this book, one of the places he went was a uh, you know, centuries-old Masonic lodge that had all these records, and they gave him a lot pertaining to the Illuminati, but nothing. They refused to give him anything pertaining to the uh, Masonic levels or grades in the, in the Illuminati. But, you know, the grade system was, was inspired. It's not just the, the uh, apprentice journeyman master of, uh, of regular Freemasonry, but a lot of the Scottish grades and there's their grades uh, started as a novice, uh, Minerval, Minerval, Illuminatus, and they would go into the, Freemason grades, and then it would become uh, different levels, similar to what you find in Scottish uh, Rite Freemasonry, like the Scottish Knight, the Regent, the Priest grade, things like that. Is there a connection between the Bavarian Illuminati and other organizations like the Freemasons? Uh, There definitely was. I mean, the Illuminati success was due in a large part to their ability to infiltrate uh, the free mas- the uh, Masonic structure of Germany and absorb much of it, including its members, into their own order, where they sort of they it was kind of like a uh, uh, parasitical uh, embrace of the Freemason Lodge, and they would take what they thought was would most serve its purposes out of the members and you know the connections they had how did they again how did they recruit initiates and what qualifications 
or attributes would they have possessed in order to join the order? Well, they were looking for people who uh, were uh, capable of uh, thinking freely, what, what were then called free thinkers. I mean, it was basically a lot of this, the liberal ideas that were uh, part of the Enlightenment and were also shared by many of the founding fathers in the American Revolution, though uh, apparently there was no knowledge of each of of the Illuminati and the American Revolution. Uh, it was only later that uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't write of them until 1801. Washington mentioned them in something uh, early in his presidency, but they apparently didn't have any influence uh, on the American Revolution, although their, uh, the Masons clearly did. There was a large Masonic presence among the founding fathers. So what they were looking for, and it was primarily uh, aristocrats, but that was part of the, of the context of the time in which they were living in. The, uh, the minor aristocracy, even the greatest aristocracy, there was the order of the strict observance, which was a uh, branch of Freemasonry in Germany that claimed direct descent from the Knights Templar. Uh, one of their... Uh, uh, their grandmaster was a was a prince, of, and uh, there are a lot of aristocrats uh, in all the different secret societies that were. Uh, Germany was basically teeming with them during this era. There was Rosicrucians, Martinists, Freemasons of various kinds, and then the Illuminati was sort of trying to work its way among all of them, and. The members they wanted were people who would be diligent and studious, uh, but they also were looking for people that could help finance their greater plans, people with skills that could be placed in positions of influence and power, people that knew other people who could network. Uh, one of the uh, things that people were asked uh, at a certain when being in doc, being in, uh, initiated into uh, certain levels was who they knew and if uh, they knew them well enough that they could uh, help if they could get other members you know employed by them or put into their service uh, you know the the, arist the noble houses of Germany at that time uh, were always hiring tutors, personal counselors, people like that. And there are a number of the royal houses or noble houses actually in the Bavarian region had uh, Illuminati as personal secretaries or advisors. Uh, Goethe, uh, as a matter of fact, only became a member after his uh, noble sponsor had become a member. Uh, Duke Ernst of uh, Saxe-Gotha, who's actually an ancestor of the current House of Windsor in, in Britain, and gave uh, Weishaupt a uh, safe haven when the Bavaria was trying to uh, arrest him. He was also a member of the Illuminati, which is why he uh, uh, gave Weishaupt refuge and a uh, small stipend on which to live after he was, uh, uh, after he had to flee Bavaria. Yeah, that's interesting too. The House of, House of Windsor, 
The real name is, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it Saxe Coburg Goethe? Yep, that's a, absolutely right. They changed in 1917 uh, to avoid the anti-German sentiment mm-hmm. that was raging because of World War One. Right, and of course, they were related. Yeah. Not only Germany, the Kaiser, but also uh, the Nicholas, the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II. They were all related, and they almost looked like clones if you look at pictures. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, the royalty, sort of like corporations today, they don't have any uh, uh, nationalist loyalties. You'll find, you know, the kings of uh, various countries are all from other countries. And, you know, the royal family of... Uh, Sweden might actually be, uh, uh, I think the king of Greece was uh, German, uh, and so forth. Yeah, and the queen, well, through Juan Carlos, the uh, Spanish king, wife was Greek yeah. too. So there's yeah. there's an interconnection there. But if these three were bloodly related, why why go to World War One? Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting that uh, things... Um, I mean, I, I would say that their control of events was uh, not as great as they, they wished it would be. I'm just thinking of what you said about the recruitment of free thinkers. It seems that the free thinkers are always the minority in a society. And at the same time, during times of war or when a tyrannical government takes over, those are the, the first people who are eliminated. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. The people that are... Uh, capable of standing apart and assessing things in a way that doesn't conform with what the rulers want are always uh, considered, uh, you know, people that need to be be removed before they uh, infect others with their free-thinking ways. Free-thinking ways, as if it was a cancer. I want to discuss the yeah. general the general features of this the society, which of if you look at it, first glance, like many organizations of the kind, would appear to be primarily an educational, as you said, pedagogical society. Uh, you know, the novice is a student working under the supervision of a director of studies. Then he takes notes, as I said before, and then hands in a report to you know of his work or some long-winded dissertation. Sounds like a typical university. Yeah, no, that that analogy uh, uh, is made by Laforestier in in the book, and it's actually something that uh, you'll find even repeated in other uh, cults or secret societies. I mean, you could say the the Scientology uh, right. would have similar, at least at the novice level, where when you're brought in and you're tested uh, and of course you're not clear you're expected to buy all these books if you go with the program you brought it up you brought up Scientology I didn't want to bring it up but I'm very curious to know about your thoughts on this because it almost operates like a secret society and I remember I've said this story many times when I was about 16, 17 working at a grocery store Somebody handed the book Dianetics because they thought, oh, Mel likes science fiction. He'll read it. I loved it. All of a sudden, they said, oh, you need to go to this address. So I went to the address. I didn't know what Scientology was. I got there and, you know, made an appointment uh, because I was interested. All of a sudden, they strapped me into some electrodes. And I immediately felt like, wait a second, I grew up a Roman Catholic. 
Um, I don't need another, I don't need more of this. So basically I just right. left. Now, fast forward 10, 20, 30 years, I've lived around the world. No matter where I go, I always get a card from them, almost as if they have their own intelligence apparatus and they know where I am at all times. How is that possible? No, that's pretty amazing. I can't answer that. I had, you know, an early uh, encounter with Scientology when I was a teenager in Boston and uh, I wasn't going to move to Boston and get a job and rent an apartment uh, so I could get clear. So that was the end of my involvement with them. But yeah, I used to run into them a lot. And then, you know, some years ago, the last time I had any contact was I was at the, I was doing a uh, selling books at the New York comic con and the hotel I was at was right next door to their center. And that seemed to have been the last, uh, the last connection. Somehow it broke. <laughs> That year. Now, going back okay. to this, did, did most recruits or initiates know what they're getting into, or did that come later? And, and what was the purpose oh, of no. joining? I mean, the purpose, I mean, there was a lot of subterfuge and uh, duping, so to speak, of people so that they would join. In fact, this was something um, the main lure that all the secret societies used was that once you become a member, you would be given access to all sorts of secret uh, knowledge that only the order had, but you would have to go through the uh, process. And the Illuminati maintained to their members that, uh, you know, most of the people joining had no idea, had just started. They were told that the order origins were way back in the midst of time that things that were happening in the world around them were due to the uh, influence in the order. There was a uh, liberalization efforts going on in uh, the Hungarian Austria, Austria at that time. And the members of the order would tell their recruits. So oh, those are our Austrian members that are, pulling the strings to make that happen. But uh, uh, there was there was no truth in it. it but, uh, you know, other orders would tell their would-be members, their recruits, that once they had been a member long enough and, and proven their devotion and that they divert, deserved that membership, they'd be taught how to make gold out of lead the alchemy was a, a very big lure at this time, especially among uh, the noble houses. So there was a variety of things, and each order would uh, try to lure members from other orders with the promise of uh, true knowledge, because inevitably certain things would come out that would uh, show that members would get would realize that there was nothing coming or that the knowledge they were being offered was fraudulent. So you'll see this, this trend that the book describes among various members of uh, various members of the Illuminati had gone through this, uh, uh, 
with other secret societies and had come to the Illuminati feeling that this was this was something that was uh, more real. To what end? What did initiates expect? Was it because they wanted to be they wanted to feel special being part of a a club? Well, I'm sure that's part of it. I mean, the Illuminati were basically, I mean, their, their first name was the Perfectibilists. So the idea was that once free of the oppression of the church, you know, the superstitious uh, dogma of the church, and once free of the corrupt, the corrupt monarchies that were ruling Europe, then human beings would have the time and leisure to perfect themselves that they could again it's a educational thing but it was also uh something that had great appeal at that time when uh enlightenment ideas were 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 uh still evolving and attracting more and more uh, attention and more and more people were were lining up behind them and the Illuminati were really a their their main focus, even if they didn't share it with all their members, was a kind of uh, political organization, not one to ferment foment revolution, but one that would put its members throughout society so that it could fix society from within. So the members of the eighteenth century Bavarian order of the Illuminati were actually considered Perfectibilists? That was their first, uh, that was what the name of the first order was going to be, and that's what was the purpose of the order, was to allow human beings the freedom they needed to perfect themselves. And because the order did not have the, uh, you know, the the secret superiors, you know, Weishaupt's, was really on his own until 1780 when several other people came in that gave this, uh, the Illuminati much more uh, scope. You know, a lot of it was uh, trying to create an order that would turn his, uh, say, falsehoods into the truth. What were the but, orders, the, the weakness? Obviously, Something caused its demise. What were the order's weaknesses? Well, I think, as in any any order, it's a, it's the people, and I think one of the chief order this order's uh, main weaknesses was Adam Weishaupt's arrogance and his autocratic tendencies. For though he was espousing very liberal uh, democratic principles, he ran the order. Uh, as an autocrat, and he was very, it took him a long time to accept other people's ideas, and he broke with people very quickly if he thought they were a threat to his sovereignty over the entire order. And unfortunately, the people that he alienated that way were those who were uh, most gifted at, at giving the order uh, a chance to achieve the description 
that Weishaupt had given to his unknowing novices, you know, the secret society with, uh, you know, uh, members in high places able to uh, help its members prosper uh, intellectually and spiritually and perhaps also financially. Obviously, for some, for cults, for orders or any organization that there must be some fertile ground in order for those seeds to sprout. How did Freemasonry take hold in Germany in 1780? What, what conditions made it fertile ground for, well, for it to grow? Lodge, the first lodge in Germany was in Hamburg in 1737, which isn't so long after uh, the Grand Lodge of London. And I think there was a real occult ferment. I mean, uh, people like to talk about the occult revival in France, you know, with Eliphas Levy and Papus and others uh, toward the end of the 19th century. But there is something similar going on in uh, the future Germany, because it was still the Holy Roman Empire at this time, uh, where there was a huge interest in... Uh, ancient traditions, alchemy, and in a way, it's sort of like the Rosicrucians and uh, the the magic that was found at the court of uh, Emperor Rudolf in Prague at the end of the uh, 16th century had gone had gone into uh, hibernation and now it had just revived, and there was like a a flurry of different societies springing up. And a lot of the people, the strict observance had some of the highest noblemen of the, of the land as its members. And they would have congresses uh, with members from other organizations and, you know, plotting out the, the future of the orders. And there was a great interest in, in the occult at this time, but in Bavaria, which was still uh, very much a, a, a backwards, very uh, oppressed, despite some liberalization efforts made by the previous elector, it was still not at all like any of the other principalities or electorates in Germany. Uh, their ideas that on the Enlightenment, which were considered commonplace elsewhere in Germany, there they were forbidden fruit. So you had a lot of the Bavarians, a lot of the Bavarians that became interested in the Illuminati were drawn by this wind of freedom they were promising. And in fact, when the Illuminati uh, began to spread into the rest of Germany, uh, a lot of the new members balked at the reading lists and things they were given because these were books that everybody was familiar with. They weren't, they weren't, there was nothing special about them. So there was some dissension early on in the, uh, between the Bavarian center and the satellite lodges throughout the rest of uh, more liberal Germany. I said before earlier in the interview about the Scottish Knights, I'm looking at some of the questions in their catechism. Here's one, quote, question. 
To what should the Scottish knight devote his activity? Answer, to exercise Masonic virtue with the, pers- the pursuit of heart, the p- I'm sorry, the purest heart, to decipher the Masonic language, to seek the truth, that is to say, fight prejudice and passion, uh, live in, uh, let's see, and study nature. With just that, it, 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 John, it makes me want to join that movement. I liked that there are plenty of other questions with similar answers. Why does it sound so benign and compelling? Was that a strategy to recruit? No, I think, I mean, that's, I think, one of the uh, uh, the tragedies of the Illuminati is that, you know, Weishaupt genuinely believed in these ideas and he was pushing for them. But at the same time, because he grew up in a Jesuit educational system, he felt he, he, he could only employ the uh, oppressive autocratic methods of the Jesuits and of the Catholic hierarchy in general. He felt that you know, he could only fight fire with fire. And uh, he, the ends justified the means, you know, that the, you know, providing, giving people the freedom to, to explore their passions for learning and for, for self-growth into, you know, you know, he felt that on a social scale, you know, his order would eventually lead to a world without war, without uh, the tension and stress that divide people and have them uh, fighting with each other. That it would, you know, he was also uh, a proponent of educating women and making women equal members, all of which were later turned against him as proof of his uh, diabolical aims. (laughs) So I'm just trying to really understand this because let me just repeat this. If anyone sees an organization that on their motto says to seek the truth, that is to say fight prejudice and passion uh, with passion, you know, with passion, live in love and study nature, that alone would attract so many people. Are you saying that Weisskopf, Weishaupt was demonized unnecessarily, or was he really not a good person? I think he was a conflicted person. I think uh, he was so keen on seeing these ideas, he felt the need for these ideas to become real and have a genuine chance to, to actually affect change in the world that it excused some of the less uh, noble methods that would be employed in order to uh, expand the influence of the society, such as you know, what we talked about before, the uh, lie about the order's origins, you know, the fact, you know, by claiming that it was much older than it was, so as to give it a greater uh weight in the minds of those who might be attracted to join. Obviously, ideas don't die. If there was the fall of the Bavarian Illuminati, but obviously we keep talking about it in the 21st century, and there are plenty of organizations out there that seem to correlate or link to it. So the question in everybody's mind, because when somebody says, oh, so-and-so is a 33rd degree Mason, or, or even part of the Masonic Lodge, 
there's this negative stigma to it. And I'm still trying to understand why. Well, I mean, if in, in the, uh, this book is divided into six parts, and the sixth part discusses that at length. I mean, you see, in the fourth part, he, he talks about the uh, fall of the order in Bavaria, and he discusses the various attacks that are made on it. But it was really only after the French Revolution that the idea of the Illuminati being uh, uh, corrupt, uh, seeking to create uh, revolt. I mean, there, there was a description, it wasn't Abi Baruel, but another emulator of him that describes Weishaupt taking great glee in the suffering he's caused, which is totally, uh, I mean, it's a complete falsehood. You know, that you know, he would be, you know, it's uh, trying to transform him into some sort of comic book villain. But, uh, you know, he made mistakes, and uh, and some of them, one in particular, uh, came back to haunt him. Uh, there was, I mean, the order was still not... It was known, but in a shadowy way, the Rosicrucians were writing polemics about this secret order that was uh, preaching uh, seditious doctrine that opposed the church and state. And they didn't really know who they were, but they were putting out these tracks to alert other people interested in the occult and secret societies to beware of this secret order. And at one point, uh, Weishaupt insulted one of the lower members of, of the order in Bavaria, who had a uh, relationship uh, with somebody who was friends to the Duchess, who, or Princess Clementina was her, her title after her late husband, who should have been the elector count. But her cousin, Carl Theodore, was the elector count. And this man, Utzneider, went and gave her copies of certain documents and told her a lot of lurid stories about the Illuminati and their attempts to subvert uh, the electorate and to remove the elector from power. And he at first, the elector at first dismissed these, but... Uh, his confessor, who was a Jesuit, former Jesuit, uh, saw this as a great opening to encourage the elector to ban all secret societies, which he did eventually. And that's what uh, led to the exposure of the members of the Illuminati and uh, their subsequent dispersal. I wonder... If when a society, you mentioned the French Revolution, so this brought a, a thought. I wonder if it, when a society reaches a certain level of achievement, enlightenment, the Renaissance, a revolution like what happened in France, or even becomes intellectually arrogant, for lack of a better term, does this open the door to this type of illuminism? Give us the example of illuminism and the French Revolution. Well, there's no 
clear, there's no, you know, uh, incontrovertible proof that there was a connection between the Illuminati and the people that uh, were key figures in the French Revolution. But afterwards, uh, there are several authors, two in particular, Robeson, who is a uh, professor of natural sciences in Edinburgh and a Freemason, but uh, he only supported the Grand Lodge Freemasonry of England and rejected all the others as devilish aberrations. And an Abbe Baruel, who was a priest who wrote a four, maybe six volumes uh, detailing uh, all the crimes and misdemeanors of the French Revolution and how they were perpetuated by this, by these Illuminati who were uh, insinuated themselves, and they found, uh, you know, chance encounters by uh, certain individuals that had been. There was like uh, several minor members of the Illuminati that had that were in France. One Bode was uh, really trying to restore the order after its fall. And Weishaupt had told him he wasn't interested, but he decided he could do it on his own. And he was traveling in Europe trying to find support. And he cited as someone that was actually carrying secret commands from the uh, Illuminati Grand Masters to their minions in France to, you know, overthrow the monarchy and uh, bring bring about the French Revolution. And you know, people there are people that uh, find this circumstantial evidence convincing, and others that don't. I mean, one of the chief uh, evidence. One of the main sources of evidence is uh, Cagliostro, who is had occult interest, but he was also a forger, uh, con man, and had, was involved in several uh, very uh, shady episodes in France before the revolution, and had actually spent six months in the Bastille as he, as he was implicated in... Uh, the theft of some uh, necklace involving Marie Antoinette. And when he was released, he wrote this uh, incendiary uh, polemic filled with enlightenment ideas that uh, earned him a visit from the papal police when he went to Rome, and he was then arrested as a Freemason and condemned to death. Freemasonry was then a crime punishable by death in the areas ruled by the Catholic Church in uh, what's now Italy. And he did end his life in a in a prison there, a Catholic of, of one of the prisons run by the Vatican. And he, he told them all these uh, wild tales about his connections to the Illuminati and how... Uh, He'd been to Frankfurt. He'd seen their huge treasures. That uh, he was part of their plans, and the Vatican records indicate that he never wavered from his story. So they took it as truth. Uh, 
later writers turned him into one of the 12 grand masters of the Illuminati, but there's no basis for that in any of the historical documents uh, concerning the Illuminati. So it's, you know, there's a lot of speculation, but it's also, uh, I think it's founded in part is that the idea of the Illuminati, because it was, it caused a sensation when uh, the evidence of how deeply they had infiltrated Bavarian uh, society, or its its uh, administrative organs, its courts, its uh, educational institutions, came out. Uh, it was rather uh, you know, sensational scandal throughout Europe, and a number of books were published uh, with citing their the papers that had been. Uh, seized during the searches, wax home, uh, a lot of the wilder accusations against them, you know, such as one of the, all of them knowing the art of poisoning so that they could remove anybody that would hinder the objectives of the, of the order, things like that. And they, uh, so when the French revolution happened, I think there's a certain, there was a certain mentality that can't believe that it that it could just erupt out of the sheer oppression of the people. There's a quote in a uh, in that sixth part of this book of one of these observers who says, "Yes, the the people of France were terribly oppressed, and the noblemen were terribly corrupt, and all these different awful things were happening. But none of them that isn't enough. It really needed, you know, some." Uh, evil force behind them to make them to make this happen, and I think that's a that's a that's still something you see today. There's people that believe in grassroots, and there's people that believe everything is top down. And the people that gave new life to the Illuminati legend are the ones that are uh, feel that. These kind of things are only possible if there are, you know, extremely intelligent, evil-minded agents pulling the strings behind the scenes. In all the years I've been studying Weishaupt and Illuminati and all this, it seems to me that, let me just get, get myself as an example. I grew up a Roman Catholic. It fell somewhat constrictive. You can never ask questions because I was dogmatic. And that prompted, it was the catalyst for me to form this program because I wanted the answers to questions. Could it be in a way that Weishaupt, Weishaupt had the same upbringing with the Jesuits? He felt like the answers that he wanted were not available to him. So he decided, and I read this somewhere, which I find it funny, but almost true. The early days of Illuminati were basically a bunch of nerdy Dungeons and Dragons kids with a dead poet society complex who really wanted to grow up and become Scientologists. And they couldn't even get <laughs> along to have a name. So they went from the perfectibilis, and two years later, because he thought the name was too weird, it was changed to Illuminati. Is this a good summary? Actually, I think that's pretty good. Uh, you know, there is a very... I mean, when you just look at uh, their, you know, the names they chose for themselves, all taken from what was then considered the epitome of, of intellectual education, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, Weishaupt's 
uh, order name was uh, Spartacus. Kanigi's name was uh, Philo. Uh, Zwack was uh, Cato, I believe. And, you know, there were others. There were a few that weren't. There was uh, one that named himself Agrippa. Uh, Mesenhausen called himself Ajax. But, uh, you know, there was really the Enlightenment was in large part uh, nourished on certain philosophical principles and traditions out of, uh, you know, the Greek tradition and the Roman Republic. And that was a source of real inspiration to them, especially the ones in Bavaria where they had been uh, forced to, you know, they're forced to comply with the dogmatic education of the Jesuits. So would it be safe to say that the average candidate was rich, docile, willing to learn on aged 18 to 30? Uh, well, in theory, yes. In principle, Weishaupt found that many of them were not so docile, and uh, their willingness to learn was somewhat... Uh, Mitigated by their desire to, to drink and chase women. <laughs> that was one of his complaints with some of the members in whom he put his greatest hopes that disappointed him severely. And he would try and remonstrate with them to uh, mend their ways and, and focus on, on educating themselves to becoming you know, worthy of the order's uh, highest ideals. What about the owl, the adopting the owl of Minerva as the group's symbol? Was that another nerdy thing to do, or did it have some kind of background? Well, it's, well, I mean, everything, um, the owl is central. It's, uh, it, it symbolizes, I believe, the, you know, it's a creature of the night as well as a creature of, uh, of intellect, symbolized seeing Minerva, which is, you know, emphasized in the names of their first two, their higher levels of the first group, the Minervals and the Minerval Illuminatus. But, you know, one of their main analogies, a leitmotif that goes throughout all their initiatory uh, procedures, their, uh, when, when someone is transiting from one grade to the higher grade, there's a lot that has to do with uh, being having the shades taken off of your eyes. You know, now you can see. Uh, I think the uh, one of their signs of recognition for the lower order was to hold both hands over their eyes, and then there was a secret handshake that went along with it. I'm just but thinking of. I'm sorry. Finish your statement. I thought you're. We're pausing there. Yeah, just, I'm just thinking more that you know the owl is a is you know a symbol of the inner light that you can find in the darkness. Well, in Greek mythology, didn't Athena always had a an owl? Yeah. And then Minerva is the same. It's it's the Roman incarnation of Greek palace Athena. Right? So I wonder if there's a connection between the owl and Minerva, which is, by the way, what we see, correct me if I'm wrong, 
in the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., that's what we see on top of it. Isn't that Minerva or Athena? No, I think that's Columbia, who has given a classical treatment. I mean, I think there was some protest at that. I'd have to look it up. But, I mean, Minerva's on the a, on a facade of uh, Notre Dame. I can't remember if she has an owl with her or not. So even in the Catholic Church, uh, even during the height of the Middle Ages, uh, Masons, this time operative Masons, would be spreading their ideas through the medium of the architecture. And you're right, on top of the Capitol, what we have is a statue of freedom, also known as armed freedom, or simply freedom, a bronze statue designated by Thomas Crawford. Okay. When we come back, we have one more hour to go. A lot, I'm going to get deeper into this. This is fascinating because we call it, it was, I believe it only lasted 11 years, but it's over a hundred years and we're still talking about it. Apparently it is still out there. Some people say that the queen, some people say that other famous people are involved in this. I wonder if that's just a conspiracy theory or if it's true and I'll get the answer on the way back. The title of this incredible book, huge book, probably one of the biggest ones I have, is The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society. Let me congratulate you for putting this together. I know you translated it, but you included all the footnotes. And after so many years, René Laforestier should be very proud of your, your work. Oh, thanks. How can yeah, people buy it? What's, well, you can find it pretty much uh, anywhere. I know it's on uh, all online bookstores. A uh, uh, lot of uh, uh, brick-and-mortar stores have apparently ordered it. So it, it's, it's not that hard to track down a copy, apparently. But I'm told by the publicist. When we come back, I want to discuss more. Obviously, I'm thinking of Bohemian Grove. You probably have heard of of the Bohemian Grove and the owl. Are yeah, we talking about this? Are we talking about the same owl here? The the, the owl that Weishaupt came up with. And we'll get you answer on the other side. This is Mel Hasselreck. You're listening to Veritas, and my special guest today is John Graham. One more hour after we come back. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.